Welcome to The Rabbit Hunt, brought to you by Cardinals.com for June 8th, 2015. I am Mark Hagen, and this week the WSOP has begun, so that means we are definitely going to be talking about that, and I'm going to be doing my traditional butchering of names that I didn't even bother to research how they're pronounced, as well as talk about a couple of events and some of the things that happened in them, namely the we'll be talking about the Colossus, which was literally colossal in terms of the number of play, live players that played in that event, and a bit of a controversy in the 10K Heads Up No Limit event. Then we're also going to be talking about California and how things have gone even worse there, if that's even possible. And then we'll take a look about at New Jersey and seeing how the market's starting to mature a little bit there. So we'll have Chris on for those later segments. For this first segment about the WSOP, though, we have, and now I think it's safe to say that this is the case, our new co-host, Robert Delafave. Robert, how, how's it going? Good, Mark. How are you? Can't complain. Uh, the WSOP tends to nuke all other news. Um, the only news I did get, like I said, was regards to California, and all that did was put me on tilt. So I'm glad I'm not at the WSOP right now. But, <laughs> but you know, it, it is what it is. How about you? Pretty good. I'm. I'm actually wishing I was at the WSOP right now. And part of that is being from New Jersey and half the players online kind of gravitating away from uh, <laughs> some of our sites to play in Vegas. But um, it's been so exciting over there just reading the headlines that, yeah, I wouldn't mind uh, taking the trek myself. <laughs> That's fair. For, for, it's probably still quicker for me to drive to vegas than it is for you to actually fly there but probably yeah we could race someday (laughs) it's the advantage of of being this much closer right all right so we're going to get things started by going over the events that have taken place as of our time recording which is as near as make no difference late on june 7th so here are and we'll skip over the events of which we'll be talking about a little bit later but We'll start with event number one. That's the 565 Casino Employees event. That was won by Brandon Barnett. He wins $76,000 and a gold bracelet. Event number two is the 5K No Limit Hold'em. That was won by Michael Wang. He wins $466,000 for first place. Event number three was a $1,500 Limit Omaha High Low event. That was won by Robert Mizraki, who wins $251,000. Event number four was a 3K No Limit Hold'em Shootout event that was won by Nick Petrangelo. See, this is what I mean by I can't, don't bother researching these names beforehand. Uh, he wins $202,000 in a gold bracelet. We'll talk about the Colossus in a little bit. Event number six was a Hyper Turbo 1K No Limit Hold'em that was won by Jean Reading. He wins $252,000 in a gold bracelet for his efforts. Event number seven was the 10K Triple Draw Deuce of Seven Championship. That was won by Tuan Lee. He wins $322 and a gold bracelet for his efforts. Event number eight was the 1500 was a $1,500 Pot Limit Hold'em event. That was won by Paul uh, McKellis. He wins $189,000 and a gold bracelet. Event number nine was a $1,500 Raz event that was won by Max Pescatori. He wins $156,000. Event number 10, we'll be talking about that as well a little bit later. Event number 11 was a $1,500 Limit Hold'em event that was won by William Kakan. He wins $196,000 and a bracelet. Event number 12 was a $1,500 Six Max No Limit Hold'em event that was won by Idan Raviv. He wins $457,000 and a bracelet. 
Event number 13 was a Omaha 7-card stud 8 or better event. That was won by Konstantin Meslak. He wins $269,000, and that actually got a decent number of entries for a Omaha 7-card stud type event. He got almost 500 players. Event number 14 was a $1,500 No Limit Hold'em shootout. That was won by Barry Hutter. He wins $283,000. And event number 15, the 10K Pot Limit Hold'em Championship was won by Sean Deeb for $319,000 and a bracelet. So let's talk about the Colossus uh, just to get things going. This event, uh, you could say it broke records, I'd say. Uh, this It was won by Cord Garcia, who won, let's see if I can pull this up, 300, 600 and, hold on, uh, there it is, $638,000 for a $500 event. The type of prize winnings you rarely see live for that type of return of investment, but they got 23000 thousand people to play this tournament uh i'd say the colossus was a success what about you you know it's funny um well yeah obviously it was a success <laughs> um what's funny is that the six hundred and thirty-eight, thirty-nine thousand dollars one was actually a very very small percentage of the the prize pool i think it was um i think like 5.7 or six percent in that range and a lot right. of players were kind of up in arms about that and the WSOP kind of came back and said, hey, that's 1,100 times the buy-in. Stop complaining. Right. And in that respect, I do agree. But it was interesting to see them take a very uh, recreational-friendly uh, approach to the um, distribution. The, so, yeah. No, I mean, um, I mean, beyond that, I mean, that, then that price point really kind of um, – the price point kind of verifies that as a very recreational, player-friendly tournament. Yes, insofar as you can get player-friendly with 23,000 players playing over four uh, starting flights in two days. Yes, I'm you sure. had 120 degrees in the Rio, I'm sure, and uh, very hot recreational players. I'm not, I'm not entirely tournament. certain the staff was feeling particularly uh, friendly at the end of all of that. But oh, no, I'm sure. <laughs> to be fair, though, they did pay 10%, so I think it was just a very flat payout structure. Mm, must have been, yeah. So, I mean, they paid the appropriate number. They paid less than they do for the uh, for the main event in terms of percentage of players, but... It do, you do look at it, and it's and it's incredibly flat. You get about two x for uh, if you were just on the other side of the bubble, and it really doesn't get to uh, ten times your buy in until you're uh, you know in four hundred and ninety fifth place. So it was obviously a flat structure, and it needed to be because again, if you have two, if you're paying out to two thousand people. It's a fair chance you're going to need to spread that money around. But I think that the, the you know, again, it's it's kind of obvious, like, clearly this was a success because it was hyped like crazy. And Lord knows I got enough press releases from the WSOP leading up to the Colossus that it was suggested that they were going to sell out. And I'm not quite sure that they did actually sell out any of their flights, but they got damn close. But they, I mean, this was about where... And I know Chris and I talked about this when they announced it initially. It's like, in order for this to be a success, they needed to get about 20,000 players. And they did that. (laughs) So I wonder, 
uh, whether this would suggest that this is going to be a more common thing, whether this is because they have the millionaire maker now and they do that every single year. Now, do you think that the Colossus is something they're going to include to, uh, to kind of kick off the WSOP? Yes, I do. Um, there's little denying the success of the Colossus. It grew, um, it drew almost 15,000 unique players and given it, it was a four reentry tournament, meaning yeah. you could buy in as many as four times. That's pretty impressive. It's more than twice as uh, almost. It's about twice as much as the main event generally gets over the year over the past few years. And it, even though it's only one twenty at the buy-in, you still have to kind of look at that and say, "Wow." Uh, as far as another impressive uh, aster attribute of the Colossus was that forty percent of the players never played in WSOP event before. Now, just based on that statistic alone. They're definitely running something like this again. If yeah. we can attract the field that has 40% of players who never got to play in a bracelet event, even if that number goes down to, say, 20 or 25 next year, which it invariably will because these first-time players will probably return, mm-hmm. um, if you keep getting new players like that, anything like that's a huge win um, for poker. Now, going to the other side of the equation... Are you going to run more events like this, not just the Colossus? And that's a trickier question because I say, how many events like this can the schedule reasonably sustain? There there were some issues with the payouts, I believe, with them getting frozen on the computer and players having to come back the next day. Um, Not to mention the Rio was obviously completely swarmed to the point where it was maybe... I'll go out on a limb and say arguably dangerous for the players. <laughs> um, you know, and I'm also kind of of the mind that these players were on the, these limited budgets where they, they handpicked this one event specifically and only this one event. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't know if they're, they'd be willing to play in, say, you know, three of these events. I guess we'll find out how that whole, if that theory holds when they run that 777 buy in event later this summer. But I think part of the reason the Colossus thrived was because it was so novel. And to include too many of these kind of events reduces that novelty. And and maybe, and this is also kind of a stretch, but maybe even tarnishes the rep, the prestige of the World Series uh, of Poker. There it is. I yeah. knew it was going to come eventually. <laughs> it's coming eventually. Save that one for the end. Yeah, I mean... This conversation started kind of the devaluing of the bracelet is a conversation that came up a lot uh, when they started adding Europe to the to the affair. When they had the circuit championship, uh, you could eventually win a bracelet there, and then they now they have WSP Asia Pacific, and that kind of quieted it down by them because every single every, every single time somebody said it devalues the bracelet, the actual players were like, it does not. You're already giving out you're giving out sixty a year. Or, I guess maybe it's closer to 70 now, but at the end of the day, it's only 70 people max that win one a year. And there are, as the Colossus has very clearly indicated, thousands upon thousands of players that play the game. Uh, but I guess that, that does come to, you know, a bit of a question is like, is, is there a reason that we now have ascribed, say, the 1k mark or the 1.5k mark is this sacred cow that we can't generally go under uh, or else it makes the bracelet look a little cheesier than it maybe did before is like is, is that kind of the the mindset that you kind of have there it's like if you have too many of these low $500 tournaments it's just going to turn into 
any other casino tournament series? You know, maybe. Like you said, these $500 tournaments are going to attract so many players. And, and even the 1K, uh, for that matter, that it's probably harder to win a bracelet in those um, than any other event. But at the same time, they are more of a lottery than any other event. Right. So it, it kind of takes a little bit of the skill element because you're playing with fewer blinds. Even though it's more this year, you're still playing with a lower stack. You're playing with swarms and swarms of players. They're generally starting to move in a, in a direction where they're allowing players to re-entry, uh, re-enter, rather, which is you know also introduces the lottery aspect of it. But I do think that has been the gold standard for years because it creates these meaningful prize pools without requiring tens of thousands of entrants, whereas the $500 prize point absolutely does. Mm-hmm. And and it also kind of allows the, the serious recreational player to take a shot without breaking the bank, but it, it kind of eliminates the, the super casual player. So it, has, it kind of is able to maintain uh, its strong player base without necessarily tarnishing that reputation or tarnishing that prestige. Now... Will the WSOP move in a direction? Maybe. And this is something I've actually suggested a little bit to, uh, or hinted at to a couple of the guys there, is maybe the bracelets will be tiered someday. There'll be a silver, gold, and a bronze bracelet at some point where they're, they're, they're uh, delegated to each type of event. I don't know if that will happen, but you have it with the circuit rings already. And if you keep introducing events that are essentially circuit ring level buy-in events maybe that's a way to go that's yeah that's that's pretty fair i think that the and i don't and again and the the conversation whether it devalues the bracelet as a whole is a little not worth making but i think that it's safer to say it's safe to say that the 10k buy-in championship events should hold themselves to a higher standard and of course the a uh, big one for one drop event had its own special bracelet as well and then the main event has its own bracelet so i think that when you get yeah when you get to the level like the the 500 or 1000 or 1000 dollar tournaments maybe yeah maybe a silver bracelet is right you still got a bracelet right but i mean it'll still say you have a wsp bracelet under your belt but it's just not as prestigious as if you were to play in one of the 10 games. I can see that being a solution. I don't know. I'm, I, I don't know how people will take it. Not well. But, yeah, I would say. <laughs> Probably not But see, well. the thing is, is that like the, the recreational player that's going to play in one or two 1Ks over the course of the entire series isn't going to care. But the poker pro that's already got a slate of 40 tournaments on under his belt and he's backed for most of them is probably going to care. So... Uh, I mean, I don't know. It's one of those things where you have to find out where that line is, where the line is where people go, oh, well, this is cheapening a bracelet because of X, Y, and Z. It's like, okay, well, we'll make it silver. Well, that's bullshit. They should all be bracelets. It's okay. You can't win going both ways with this. But uh, you're right. I, I, I can't see there being uh, too many bracelet events that are in the the 500 range like going forward i think this is going to be the one of the, then there's yeah there's the DraftKings one that's 777 dollars but i can't see i mean i can't see them dropping too many more events down to 500 if I only because they already have the daily deep stacks that do that right you just i don't i don't think you can because 
can the Rio sustain it? You know, you have a six-week yeah. schedule, and and the players are going to come uh, for those tournaments. I just don't think the staff is going to be, to, like you said, uh, very happy about all of this and and understaffed, and it just causes problems, and it's it's just too much. Keep it novel, I think, um, and then it'll be the best path forward. Yeah, I mean, there's only been one other or two other events. The Casino Employees event doesn't really count because no. that's that's not an open event. Right. But the only other event that was 1K so far in this schedule is the Hyper No Limit Hold'em event. That, that that had its own twist. It was a Hyper Turbo. So that changed things quite a bit. There's plenty of 1Ks still on the list. In fact, there was one that started this weekend that was a Turbo No Limit Hold'em that was a 1K. And the Millionaire Maker is happening now, though that one's 1,500. So there's still... There are there aren't as many one k no limit hold'em tournaments as there was like a couple of years ago when the when uh, Caesars decided that they needed to have a one k tournament like every three days. So they are they are pulling back from that, but I would be it'd be interested if uh, the five hundred and sixty five dollar price point starts showing up a little bit more frequently going forward. Now to add to the headache of. The Colossus having 22,000 people, or I guess 15,000 unique people showing up over two days. To add to the headache that there's players that were pissed off that they, that the uh, percentage going to first place was lower than normal, though I would argue, let's look at the, I would look, I would rather look at the ROI than the actual, you know, percentage of the prize pool in that particular instance. The other controversy that's kind of reared its ugly head involves cheating because that's a great way to start the series is to have somebody look like they're cheating and cheating in a way that might require collusion with dealers at the WSOP which is never nice so Connor Drynan you may remember him as the guy that got aces cracked by other aces at the big one for one drop last year because that isn't unlucky uh, played in the 10K in the in event number 10, and uh, the 10K heads up no limit event. I should probably say who won that because I didn't say it earlier. That was won by Keith Lear. He is not the cheater. He got $334,000 in a bracelet. But there is a guy that was cheating. He goes by the name of Valeru Coca, I think is how you say his name. And, so. huh? I think so. That's pretty good. It's close enough, right? Give I yourself mean, some credit. Yeah, that was pretty good. It, 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 if if I'm wrong, I don't care because it sounds like he's a cheater. So he's a cheater, yeah, whatever. who cares? So, anyways, uh, he he was Connor was playing against this guy in a heads up event and noticed that things like he was getting his ass kicked basically because he couldn't do he couldn't really make any right moves. So there were a couple times that he stopped showing looking at his cards first. And the guy suddenly was getting flustered, like, what the fuck's going on? And that raised a bit of a red flag. Now, the guy's wearing sunglasses. We'll get to the, to the enduring controversy regarding that later. And uh, he Drynan loses. But it, it comes to light that it seems like the guy may have been using invisible ink and marking the cards. And he was able to tell whether... Connor had a good hand or not. This is not a resolved issue. Jack Heffel did post on Twitter the other day that they're definitely looking into it. But and and then you have Kevmas saying that there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that this actually took place, but again, there hasn't been a resolution at least that I can see as of time of recording. So, 
Um, you know, it's it's so great that it hasn't even been a week, and we're getting the WSOP's version of Ali Tikintamich, the guy that notoriously cheated. Uh, he's not doing it in the same way. For those that don't remember, Tikintamich, who's in prison, by the way, for fraud, uh, had a fake poker reporter look at his opponent's hole cards and signal to him what what the hand was. So at least he doesn't have a partner in this, but uh, these allegations are kind of serious. Oh, yeah. I still get a kick out of watching that guy, like, on the, um, you'll say the name better than me, Tekken Tomic yeah. <laughs> video where he's touching his nose at, like, 27 seconds. And, like, like he's some sort of, like, shifty third base coach for, like, a major league team. Um, it's pretty funny. But as far as... Uh, this is this is unbelievable, really. I mean, we're what, what six days in? Yeah, this happened. Oh, I can't even. I can't even get over. Uh, it's amazing to me. It's, it's baffles the mind. And this was so, in my opinion, blatantly obvious as to if you read the accounts, it's a how could it not be some sort of combination of the ink and the uh, sunglasses and maybe yeah. some sort of rail signaling? I think this guy really covered all his bases. It seems. With the frustration, not playing the first ten hands, and then and then playing like a maniac every single match, and then finally losing to the guy who covers his cards, you know, it kind yeah. of adds up, you know. It it does it does not look good for him now. I, so the method that uh, Connor is suggesting and other people have suggested as well is that he had sunglasses and he used ink that the polarized lens will you know it'll pop up for them, but you yourself can't see it. Um, is this something that he was able to, and, and like you said, it's like the first 10 hands he plays like a knit and then he goes and then he goes crazy. So is this something that the dealer would have to be on? I imagine. No, imagine he had some way of getting the ink on those cards, right? There is some problems with introducing a dealer because I feel like, first of all, you're playing a heads up tournament where right. there's rounds of, then I believe, you know, 128 rounds of 64, etc. I have to imagine it would be a different dealer each match. Right, so it would be really hard for it to be anything on Caesars. And I, I did see a couple comments about that on 2 plus 2, but then again, it's 2 plus 2. So <laughs> it, 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 I guess it, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem at all likely because, yeah, if you had the same dealer on, the, on that table every single time, that would by itself be kind of like, hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, but, and he certainly doesn't have the whole Caesar staff under his uh, bankroll, you know? I'm guessing not. Let's hope not, at least. It's, otherwise, we have a whole other problem. Yeah, I was going to say, that's going to make this a bit of a bigger thing, and I'm surprised he only ended up in fifth place. Yeah. The, f- the funny thing is, is that, so, th- this is a disputed report, but apparently he's already been banned for doing basically the same thing in Prague. And uh, there's dis- there's uh, disputed accounts of this. There's uh, in the same thread where Connor had uh, mentioned what had happened to him. There are people that have re- reported that he has not been banned. But still, uh, you know, cheating's a thing. Cheating is a thing that happens every single time. It seems but we have this. Uh, the methods get more creative, and of course, you have some of the people in the in the old guard of poker pros sounding off on this and. Uh, what are your thoughts on so uh, Daniel Negreanu had mentioned on Twitter that he thinks that sunglasses are cheating just on face that they shouldn't be banned to begin with, and uh, what are your thoughts on having sunglasses being one of those things that you can't wear at the WSOP? Well, let me say first that I think uh, Negreanu's comments were 
a little bit misconstrued. He kind of was very, he seemed very heated when he when he was making his recent tweets. Right. And saying, you know, kind of calling for the all-out ban, kind of saying, implying at least that sunglasses were straight-up cheating, just on their own. Right. And he got a lot of backlash well, he's Well, he's been, he's said this more than once. This isn't the oh, first yeah. time he's Five said that ago. he feels like sunglasses are... A, they're cheating. Now he's not saying he's not going so far as to saying they're at the level of, the, of this douchebag. He, I think, that what his his point's been is that like you shouldn't be able to hide like that. If you're a bad poker player and you can't, you know, if your eyes tell everything, then that's your problem, not the fact you need sunglasses to get around that. Yeah, you know, you can make the same argument then that that major league baseball players shouldn't wear, um, you know, black uh, paint under their eyes or ink under their eyes. I don't know if it's an argument that really holds up. I, I do think sunglasses are dumb. Yes, I and, agree with that. I mean, there's no kind of no denying that, but do I share the same sentiments as him regarding that they're cheating on any level? Not necessarily, but going back to this specific situation, his what he meant to say essentially was that Cheaters who use sunglasses to see mark cards are the problem. Yeah. And and he's right. I mean, we see the shitstorm that kind of happened just from this scenario. If 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 the sun eliminating sunglasses would eliminate cheaters, if that's like kind of a ubiquitous statement, then then let's do it. Now, like I said, I think the sunglasses are dumb. I think face covering hoodies. And even the scarves are just dumb. Um, there were definitely a couple years where I was like, wow, it's nine people that look the exact fucking same. Like, this isn't entertaining at all. I don't understand. I mean, the the two years I covered the, the, the November 9, that was when you started seeing that trend happen. Where you, like, the people that had been playing for a very long time that weren't just online pros were fine, but then the ones that were the online pros would be in hoodies and sunglasses and just stoic the whole the whole time. Yeah. And then the very next year, it was everyone. It was, like, 2010. Like, everyone had the exact same uniform, basically. And it was just like, I'm watching monks play poker. This isn't very entertaining at all. So, um, I guess, yeah, I mean... I agree with Negrano that the the sunglasses at least are make it easier to cheat because the like I was mentioning earlier, it's like the polarized lens will show up, will will bring out certain types of ink, and that's how you mark cards basically. Um, whether or not that you actually are going to get a ban from the WSOP for this, whether that's actually going to be something they're going to institute, is uh, unlikely, but. Is definitely something they'll have to look at, especially if they do do their own investigation and find out it is a thing. But well, oh god, yeah. You know, what's interesting is it, it, it actually serves a a bigger purpose too. Because all right, yes, there is going to be a backlash if you ban sunglasses, especially from the people who wear them. Yeah, um, but also from people who feel like the World Series of Poker shouldn't be, you know, so dictatorship like with regards to the rules. But I do think it might be better in the respect that, like you mentioned earlier, these players who wear them, who uh, brandish the uh, hoods and the scarves and the, and the sunglasses are so stoic that it's becoming an issue for people watching it. You know, I'm watching live streams this year, and I think I was in my car one day, and I, I was just taking a, a trip somewhere, and I was watching one of the live streams, and, and the screen froze on me. 
I think I was watching uh, Paul Volpe make a decision. The screen froze, and I'm tapping the screen, tapping the screen, trying to reset it. So maybe my 4G was down. I think about eight minutes in, I realized he just hadn't moved. Because <laughs> David, Tuck, David Tuckman starts talking over it. And I'm like, oh, the audio is going. This and is, I start to oh put boy. two or two together here. Oh, no, he hasn't moved. <laughs> Yeah, that uh, that's an ongoing issue. I mean, we uh, we've we've heard this argument before that the kind of the the people that came into poker because of online don't quite have the same uh, showmanship as the people that we as the group of players that came in in two thousand three and two thousand four. Now, the reason why those players are popular are exactly because of their showmanship. Uh, more than anything else, but in their personalities, and that's why a lot of them have endured as long as they have. But uh, certainly, uh, the the flip side of this, which is uh, like you just said, eight minutes of stoic nothingness, not so much. But uh, uh, I mean, it's the that's one of those issues that I guess can come out of this sunglasses ordeal. Is if they find out that that well, this was a very easy way to cheat, then small problem. All right, yeah. so we're going to wrap up our WSB coverage for this week here. We'll obviously have more to talk next week, and we're going to be switching hosts. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to say some last words. Oh, I'm so honored. Yes. Well, first of all, I'm looking forward to uh, hosting. I know Chris has some big shoes to fill there, so I'll do my best. <laughs> um, but um, I, I think, you know, as far as, as, as the WSOP it being time for WSOP, I'm like, good, you know, we need it. Poker is kind of in this colossal, oh, that's, that was kind of ironic, colossal oh, downswing. Uh. And this, um, <laughs> and this new, uh, friendly approach we have that, that, that kind of caters to the, the recreational player, I think is doing more good than, than it is doing bad to the pros right now. Now, maybe this will be a temporary thing where it's, uh, all these lower buy-in events and, and massive fields because there are some difficulties with the chip counts going up. I know a lot of the limit players were complaining that the extra 2000 chips is not allowing them to play more tournaments and it's Mm -hmm. keeping them up till five in the morning every night. So I don't know if we're going to stay like this just because there's a lot of difficulties. I think we're going to find a middling approach, but for this Specific year, I think it was absolutely necessary. And we'll see how it plays out the rest of the way. But that's kind of my first instinct. Yeah, I mean, as the WSP, every single year there's kinks in the WSOP. So we'll see how things work out structure-wise and everything else going forward. I know I know that Chainsaw has already posted a couple spreadsheets about how the structures of certain events could be better. But what else is Alan Kessler? Yeah, I'm shocked. <laughs> is he going to play tournaments? No, he's going to take a look at structures the whole damn time. All right. We will talk to you again next week, uh, Robert. Take care. Take care. So I'd like to talk about our longtime sponsor to the podcast, CardRunners.com. And CardRunners is the premier poker training site for all of your poker training needs, whether you're playing online or live. Realistically, really, you can get some good advice to playing live poker, so you shouldn't be worried that if online poker for, for some reason isn't allowed in your country of residence, shouldn't make too much of a difference. This week, we there's actually videos in all sorts of different things. We have a look at a rebuy tournament for PLO. We have a look at some Turbo Sit and Goes, which, again, live poker basically has Turbo Sit and Goes in their daily tournaments. And there's some 6-max zone poker. Yes, that is online only, obviously. 
That said, there's still plenty of ways to get a hold of Card Runners. You can, of course, buy a subscription. You can, If you purchase a monthly subscription, you get a free seven-day trial. If you're in a space that allows for the iPoker network, though, you actually have other options to get longer a longer period of time for Card Runners for free. So be sure to check out Card Runner Deals. It's, if you go to cardrunners.com, take a look at the top bar, you'll see CR Deals. If you click on that, there are two options, William Hill Poker and Titan Poker, that if you sign up through Card Runners on the, through that page, you can get anywhere from one to three free months of Card Runners. So be sure to check out CardRunners.com at your earliest convenience for all of your poker training needs. All right, now to talk about things that have nothing to do with the WSOP, we have Chris Grove joining us for the last time on the Rabbit Hunt. Chris, how's it going? Good. Talking about things that are not the WSOP is kind of my speciality. <laughs> so. Yeah, let's let's go ahead and get started with the fact that uh, California is pretty much going full retard, and you never want to go full retard. I uh, heard that in a movie once. Yes, exactly. So there is an advertisement, which we are actually going to play in its entirety, that the Vejas band has recently put out in targeted markets, certainly in Sacramento and in other places as well, that has has them voicing some concerns over the latest push for online poker. So we'll go ahead and uh, play the play the ad for you, and you can go ahead and and take a listen and just just think about what we've been talking about before and what we thought were solved issues that may no longer be solved issues. The California legislature should be trying to stop internet scam artists and con men. We deserve to be protected from corrupt companies like PokerStars, which was indicted by the U.S. government for illegal gambling, bank fraud, and money laundering, and paid $731 million to avoid criminal conviction. PokerStars' parent company recently had its headquarters raided as part of an investigation into violation of securities laws. But this hasn't stopped PokerStars from lobbying our state legislature to allow them to participate in online poker here in California, gaining access to every computer, tablet, and smartphone in the state. This is not right, and we deserve better. Please go to findyourrep.legislature.ca.gov to contact your state legislator and tell them to keep bad actors like PokerStars out of AB 431 and out of California. Paid for by the VA Band of Kumeyaay Indians. Damn it. I like that beat, though. I think they, they really had something in there. It was a nice little groove underneath it. It started off sort of sinister, but then it picked up toward the middle. Oh, were you listening to the words? Yeah, I, yeah I, was, I, was, I was actually no, I listening, listening to the words. To the words no. no, you weren't listening to the words at all? Because yeah, the, the no, words sounded like things that we had said were not problems anymore but now they appear to be problems again. I what? I, I still think that the tracks are, are the primary issue. Sure, but... I, I really do. And I, I think that there are a number of ways that, that you can talk about this, but I think the simplest way is just to imagine that you're in a position where you know that you don't want something to happen, but the reason why you don't want it to happen is not politically palatable. And so your natural instinct at that point is to look for reasons to prevent it that may not actually matter to you, but are far more politically palatable. Mm. And I think that that is the proper way to contextualize this ad. 
So I guess the thought process then is because it's political suicide to go against the tracks and ergo the unions, it's easier to fall back on an earlier issue that was a problem and just say, okay, we're still kind of annoyed about this because, but it's just a way to tank the bill because they're not getting what they want with regards to tracks. I think that that's the proper way to, to, to think about this ad. Yes. So that's not, it's still a negative. I mean, it's still yeah. not a good thing, but to me, it doesn't really change the, the concept of the bad actor being the solvable issue of the two primary stumbling blocks to online poker in California, those being the tracks and, and then the bad actor issue, the, the tracks, their participation is just a, an issue that has no obvious solution. It has far greater implications for all parties involved and, public posturing like this ad to the to the side it's also the the issue that i think heels have really been dug in over and and you've really seen the development of hardened polarized positions that aren't really conducive to finding a middle ground nor is the issue itself conducive to finding a middle ground as as it does appear to have evolved into a binary either they can operate or they can't there isn't a lot of middle ground there it's it's a yes or no and on or off Right, the tracks have already said no to some sort of revenue sharing thing, right? They yes. said yeah. they w- they want to be operators. Now, again, how much of that is is their true position? We'll never know because, as we've discussed several times, their optimal stance is just to ask for the max, right, and, and then to work away from that. So, of course, they're going to ask for the max, and in this case, they perceive, I think, incorrectly. Uh, well, incorrectly in terms of an economic perspective, I, I don't think getting an operator's license is the max in terms of the maximum money that they could realize from right. from online gambling. But it is politically the max in that they know it is the thing that those on the other side of the table are most loath to give. Yeah, isn't now as an aside, though, is one of those things that like the tracks actually need some sort of revenue source that isn't the horse racing itself, whereas the casinos don't really need online poker i mean that's kind of a tough position to be in if you're the tracks because you don't like that it doesn't take very long for the other side that is loath to give you this thing to look and go well we can just say no and we won't get it either but we don't need it as badly as you right that's the problem yeah, I mean, that, that, <laughs> I mean, that's the problem in a nutshell. Right. You have these intractable debates, these, these intractable points of difference, and you have no clear motivation to solve, really, on either side. The Viejas band of a, I'm not even going to say it, of in some something I cannot say well, and I've already butchered enough names in the WSP segment to not want to do it here, the... Uh, in uh, but they haven't been have they been that that vocal up to this point because it seems like Vejas has not been in the group of of tribes that we've consistently talked about we can just talk about Bachanga, Paula, uh, Morongo but we don't really talk about Vejas so where do they sit in this morass of sides that exist in California? Right. That's one of the unfortunate parts of of shortening the Pechanga Coalition to the Pechanga Coalition when it it does, in fact, represent anywhere from six to a dozen tribes, depending on what point in time in this saga you're talking about. But Viejas has been consistently, to the best of my knowledge, consistently aligned with Pechanga 
on both the issues of tracks participation and also the issue of bad actors. They haven't been as upfront on the issue as Macaro has been, right? But it, it could be actually a, a strategic response by the coalition. This is just me speculating, but it could be a strategic response from that coalition that involves Pachanga, Agua, Barona, Viejas, and a handful of other tribes to rotate other members out to the front of the debate to help to mute the impression that this is just a Pachanga initiative. Right. To tell the broader story that this is, in fact, a relatively wide-ranging coalition of powerful tribes, and it's not just Pachanga doing the speaking and all the other tribes signing the letter. It is, in fact, the the view held by by all tribes, and, and perhaps this commercial is a way to stress that point, that if you do try to oppose uh, the, that coalition on this issue, you won't just be getting a backlash from Pachanga. You'll also be getting the full backlash from all of the, the signatories to that coalition. Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest things about the fact that Pachanga is the, the letterhead of this coalition is that they are by far the biggest of the of the people in this group. And they've been the face of it for a significant portion of time. Now, that said, as you mentioned, you know, I think that I, I would agree in the sense that I think that they're bringing Vejas out for this particular ad is purely to say, hey, look, there's more than one of us in this group. Um, I know that insiders in Sacramento certainly are aware of the fact that there are, you know, for lack of a better term, factions and who is in these factions, I'm sure that they're relatively aware of that. But the public at large isn't. I mean, if they've heard anything, they probably only heard that Pachanga, because we have to shorten it ourselves, is the one spearheading this um, this side that has been, I want to say, the least permissive of the, of all the major groups, uh, with the Tracks and the Morongo Poker Stars Coalition being the other one, uh, the other ones that we really talk about a lot. Uh, but I want to get back to the content of the ad itself. Um, what were your thoughts on them using, I mean, it shouldn't be too much of a surprise that they used poker stars uh, and their past with the DOJ, but what were your thoughts on them kind of alluding to the fact that Amaya is just as corrupt because they have their, that's uh, ongoing securities investigation that at least on face does not seem to be phasing either Amaya or Canadian officials. I don't know if they alluded to it so much as they explicitly stated as well, much. Well, but right, it, but, they, but they don't. A, but they refer to Amaya effectively as poker stars in this. They don't right. refer and, to Amaya as its own company. No, and I guess that that's accurate so much as it as it as it goes in that Amaya doesn't really own it much besides poker stars at this point. But right. I did think it was interesting that Amaya was brought into the fray. By and large, when we've seen this sort of public rhetoric from that coalition around the bad actor issue in the last year or two, it, it is focused on poker stars. And even after Amaya's acquisition, it's still primarily focused on poker stars. You might get the offhand comment here or there. I think Macaro said in an interview with iGaming Business, Chairman Macaro said something along the lines of the Amaya acquisition didn't change anything about his opinion of, of poker stars mm -hmm. said that back in the fall. But that was about as, as far as it went. If you looked at the letter that they wrote to Joan Sawyer opposing AB167, if you looked at public statements since then, Amaya has not really been drawn in 
And so I thought it was interesting to hear Amaya be very present in this ad and to, to hear really an attack line that echoes almost word for word the attack line that's trotted out by CSIG and, and Andy Abood and, and Las Vegas Sands when they do their thing at, at state hearings. So it's interesting to see the AHAS borrowing a little bit from that playbook, and it, it does make you wonder if there is a connection there beyond just them finding those those arguments appealing. Mm-hmm. Obviously, LVS would, would love to throw up whatever roadblocks it could in California, and when you start hearing the tribal coalition that opposes poker stars and, and the tracks echo some of the LVS arguments. Not that those arguments are incredibly unique. I mean, these are the, the first things that you would basically choose to point out. It is the lowest There's, hanging fruit. Yes. Right. It, it's the easiest to sum up in an ad. It, it, it hits to the heart of the issue. So there, there's nothing that about the arguments that is so specific that it makes you say, oh, well, there must be someone working on both playbooks that that is shared across both companies. But I did think it was interesting, first, that Amaya is now in the fray, and then second, that we're seeing the the very similar attack lines in this ad that that we saw, I think, most recently out of a boot at at a Pennsylvania hearing in front of the Gaming Oversight Committee about a month ago. So California's screwed, right? They're not getting online poker in 2015. I think the chances are dwindling. Because the other thing that that we're working against is a ticking clock, of course. You Mm -hmm. have a session that wraps up in early September, so functionally your deadline is is late August. And again, we probably had these conversations last year. At some point, you just start looking at the calendar and you say, well, this is a complex bill. They've been working on the issue for a while, sure, but they haven't sorted out all of, of the nuts and bolts. They haven't dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's. They never got to that point with past legislation. So there's still a lot of that heavy lifting to do. At some point, you need a ramp. It's not as if you get consensus and then the bill is just written the next day and then it goes through the legislative process. Once consensus is established, you need language that reflects that consensus and then stakeholders all need to sign off on that language as well. It's it's the next step. It's consensus about the consensus, right? So we get the agreement in principle and then they actually hash that out in terms of bill language which, as you know, that's convoluted, dense stuff. It takes a lot of drafting. It takes a lot of back and forth. And we saw even just with the amendments to AB 431 how it can really take some intense negotiation and a, a, a serious period of time to hash out language for a bill that doesn't matter. Almost meaningless language, really. Right required a fair amount of negotiation and back and forth. So what will it require when we're talking about the language of the bill that will form the actual law, the legal framework surrounding online poker. That's not something that's going to get done in a couple of days. At a a minimum, it requires a couple of weeks. Realistically, it requires several weeks and and likely a couple of months. So I think we're looking at an incredibly tight time frame. And if we don't see that consensus or, or strong signs that that consensus is emerging, at the June hearing or the July hearing, and the July hearing is, I think, specifically the, the one to watch, uh, then I think we can more or less close the book on online poker in California for this year. The one perhaps silver lining is that they could make AB 431 a two-year bill and possibly salvage some of the work that has already been done. But again, that doesn't leave me feeling incredibly optimistic because it 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 may pause the bill at a certain legislative point which is further along than past bills have been but it still doesn't do anything 
as far as I can tell, to advance the various parties on these core points of disagreement. So, you know, at that point, it doesn't matter if, if they could somehow fast forward the bill to the governor's desk. That doesn't really matter. Yeah. Right. It, it, it still has to be populated by language that everyone agrees on. And until that happens, until we see signs that that's happening, then it is hard to be optimistic about California. I think that, I mean, the last point on this, and then we'll move on, is that, actually, there's two, There's another point, there's another question I wanted to ask, but to, to this point, it seems like there has been forward momentum, this is the first time that any it's gone through any sort of uh, passage, and even in its shell form, and the PPA has been kind of quick to point out the uh, the momentum, but from our perspective, and we've been talking about this for a few weeks now, it's like there really hasn't been that much momentum. You're you're passing a bill that was a shell, and you needed to dr- drastically change that bill, that shell bill, just to get it passed, or at least to get people to shift it from a opposed stance to a neutral stance. So I think with uh, with things like this ad showing up, and with I guess in the from the state senate side, they're not really moving very quickly to get any meeting set up there it it kind of just makes it look like well it was a lot of sound and fury and then that really didn't signify anything to completely bastardize that quote uh and we're back in square one where there's still these intractable issues that haven't actually been solved yet and now where whereas i remember we were saying or at least i was saying at some point like screw the tracks they don't really matter uh, now that is another issue that is keeping the any sort of online poker bill from going on, on in California. And I guess the last question I have regarding this is, and, and, and I've been mentioning it on Twitter, uh, other people have as well, and I'm sure we've we've touched on it a little bit here. What are your thoughts on the the possible theory that there's some Indian casinos that just straight up don't want online poker and figure that by continually drawing lines in the sand that say we shall go no further than this, it'll just perpetually kill every bill that comes through. I'd say two things. The first, and I know that we've used these words before in a relatively similar order, this question of what it means to not want online poker. And I, I think that the Amaya, Morongo, Car Club, Sam Manuel Coalition has effectively framed this issue in a way that that works for them but doesn't necessarily tell the most honest story about the situation everybody in california i think wants online poker on their own terms right and so i don't necessarily buy into the narrative that because pachanga et al oppose online poker on the terms offered that they then must necessarily oppose online poker in any form but having said that the second Thing that that I'd note here is it's not irrational to not want online poker in in many scenarios. If you put yourself in the shoes of someone who's operating a tribal gaming entity, online isn't necessarily something that you might feel prepared for. Mm-hmm. Online is is something that, more to the point, your preparation aside, online disrupts the status quo in a way that it's easy to see why you believe it wouldn't be advantageous for you. You you dominate the status quo in terms of gaming in California. So any disruption is something to reasonably be feared right. because of the, the strong position you hold in the market. 
the lack of upside relative to that disruption is another incredibly strong argument against keeping the lid on the Pandora's box of, of online poker in California from the perspective of some tribes. The money involved is minuscule relative to the broader size of the Indian gaming market in California, or the market for tribal casinos in, in California. So you just don't have a lot on that side of the scale. It'd be one thing if you're talking about a multi-billion dollar market, and you could say, all right, well, we're going to risk upsetting the apple cart, but our reward is potentially tremendous. Mm -hmm. So let's move forward into the future, let's embrace it, and let's try to extend our dominance into this new, exciting vertical. But no, we're talking about something that represents, frankly, a a single-digit percentage, perhaps even smaller than that, of the total market for land-based gambling at, at tribal entities in California. So it, it's not a very close risk-reward equation, really. It, it's incredibly heavy on one side and pretty light on the other. And for that reason, I, I don't know that it needs to be a conspiracy theory so much as just mm-hmm. common sense that for some tribes in California, they're going to look at that equation and they're going to say, this does not make sense when I do just a simple cost-benefit analysis Let's keep things the way they are until there is an opportunity that is worth disrupting the status quo for or a threat that we need to respond to that is worth disrupting the status quo for. I don't believe either of those are are the case right now with online poker. All right, let's move to a place really uh, rather quickly anyways that uh, does have online poker, and that's New Jersey. And so the DGE is... uh, I won't say fighting with affiliates, but there are definitely there are affiliates that are still promoting unlicensed sites in New Jersey. And while you can all while it's very easy to have this sort of gray area logic for why you can operate in state still operate in states in the in the United States, uh, be you Bavada or America's Card Room or whatever, uh, New Jersey you realistically can't ever make that argument because there are actual laws in the books regarding online gambling in the state. So obviously affiliates can't necessarily be allowed to do that either. So last year they definitely did send cease and desist letters to several online poker affiliates, and now they've actually started uh, addressing what would happen should you fail to comply with regulations. And of course these will these include uh, rev- uh, revocation of your license and possibly the imposition of a monetary penalty, which for a lot of affiliates is not exactly the greatest thing to have happen to you. But also uh, we have uh, David Rebuck, who's the chief of the, uh, of the DGE saying that they will give a 150 days uh, for, you know, to actually address this issue. And some sites have, and some, some sites have done it, Explicitly, some have said, fuck this, I'm out, and others have used uh, various other methods. So I guess uh, the first question I have for you is, I mean, what did affiliates think was going to happen? Like, this seems like kind of a duh for me, but, I mean, several several affiliate sites were targeted last year for this, and and we're just now learning about the penalties now. Like, did they expect anything different to happen? I don't know if they expected anything different to happen, but I think they recognized, arguably correctly, that there was little risk to continuing as they were. And I I think that this change, while a positive one, confirms that assessment. You still get, what is it, five months, basically, to continue promoting both 
And then as long as you flip the switch on the 149th day and, and send in your notarized letter, you're fine. That reflects a certain reality that the DGE only has so much it can do in terms of jurisdiction. It only has so much it can do in terms of resources. And that it has other priorities that are just higher up the chain when it comes to not only casino gambling in New Jersey. You know, the land-based casino, obviously, uh, in Atlantic City does require a little bit of attention these days. But even just within online, uh, affiliate marketing is, is also just down the priority list. So I don't know necessarily that affiliates who are promoting both thought that there would never come a day of reckoning. I just think that they believed that they, they might as well make as much money as they could for as long as they could. And the DGE would tell them when they could no longer do that. And now that's what the DGE appears to be doing. So I think it's a positive for the market. And I think that perhaps more importantly, New Jersey is setting a precedent that will likely be adopted by other states, certainly other states in the region. So you may see Pennsylvania's regulations, for instance, mimic this directive from day one without a timeline, without a grace period. And then we'll see this become the standard when regulations are written, that affiliates are forced to make that choice immediately, or perhaps even if they didn't make the choice when given the opportunity by the DGE, that they will be preemptively shut out from other states. And that is another aspect of of this. The DGE will now have some sort of record of of the behavior of licensees and will be free to share that with regulators from other jurisdictions. So what are your thoughts on, so, I mean, obviously, again, this goes, I think the answer to this question is going to be this is purely a jurisdictional issue but there are a couple so there's some sites that have scrubbed the unlicensed uh, material from their sites there's some sites that have scrubbed new jersey from their their list of sites that they're promoting uh, there are a couple sites uh, cards chat and poker sites.com that uh, try to do geolocation to target new jersey residents with only the sites that they're allowed to go to and then they just they and they still offer unlicensed uh, sites elsewhere. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't seem like it takes too much effort for a New Jersey resident to start seeing advertisements for these unli- for these unlicensed sites. Is this a suitable workaround, or is the DGE, DGE basically a, going to? Do they have the ability to say no? You don't understand how this works. You can't do that. As I read the directive, it's advertising. I don't have it in front of me, but it it's advertising to residents of any state where such activity would be illegal. So it's no longer framed as something you just can't do within the borders of New Jersey. Again, this is my interpretation, but I believe the, the, the language is in there that extends it to advertising anywhere in the U.S. where it would be legally problematic. So the geolocation, it's not so much a, a workaround, really. It's, it just makes sense. If I'm either of the sites you mentioned, I only want to advertise... New Jersey-based sites to players in New Jersey, so I'd naturally right. be geotargeting anyway. And I think the first DGE cease and desist did have more to do with activity within New Jersey and didn't speak to marketing activity in the broader U.S. market. Here I see an expansion of, of that to the broader U.S. market, but that may be something that, that will end up being a point of dispute. To me, the language felt fairly clear, but I, I also saw a little bit of, of ambiguity in there. It will be interesting to see if affiliates try to push that particular point or if they just take the language of the directive at 
face value and treat it as a choice, an all-or-nothing choice between promoting regulated in the U.S. and promoting uh, offshore sites. Yeah, I mean the this is this is a little bit more minutia in terms of news, but what what do you, you do? The WCB kind of swallows everything. But it, it's it, I think that this story is important mostly because of the fact that. It reminds us that there's multiple facets to this whole thing of legalized online gambling in the U.S. And Nevada really isn't, doesn't qualify here because really there's only one room that gets any sort of traffic whatsoever and it's poker only anyways. New Jersey is kind of the, the, the testing ground for everything, realistically. Testing for more complicated geolocation testing ground for all for the entirety of casino gambling, all that stuff. So it's things like this that, as you mentioned before, uh, you have States like Pennsylvania that will take a look at this as well, or seats in new England that are considering this as potential, as potential frameworks for their own regulations down the road. So that's going to do it for this week's rabbit hunt. I, Chris, I do believe you have an announcement that you said you needed to make. Oh, uh, well, I, I do have a last word, so I'm going to get that in there as well. There's yeah. a hearing on Wednesday, Wednesday, I want to say 9 a.m. Eastern time, and that's going to be in the Pennsylvania Senate. I, I would think of this as a critical hearing. There does seem to be quite a bit of momentum in Pennsylvania as opposed to California. So keeping up with the outcome of that hearing should give you a better idea of, of how genuine that momentum is, but certainly something to keep an eye on. And then, as you alluded to at, at the top of the segment, this is my last episode of The Rabbit Hunt. I certainly want to thank Card Runners for giving me the opportunity and, and also uh, Mark, you for sitting in the virtual chair virtually next to me for low these many episodes. <laughs> uh, we were rarely on time. We were rarely structured, but it was always enjoyable. That's great. To, uh, great to have you on for these last couple of years. And uh, we'll, we'll say, fortunately, you are still going to be in poker media. Uh, Matt transitioned to being uh, to working for a site that's trying to put out a product in Nevada. So we haven't really had chances to talk to him, but I'm sure we'll have you on for segments in the future because. I can imagine, and I apologize for the sound of a passing truck. Just that now. was me just driving away. I just <laughs> hopped on the was back. It, of you it already got in the moving van. Yep, um, just rolled over the hill. I'm certain we'll have Chris on again in the future when we start talking about things that don't have to do with the WSOP and stuff that has to do with them online poker in states not Cal- not named California as things heat up over there. That said, good luck at the tables, but the online R Live will bring you more poker news from around the poker world, including, and by force, the WSOP next week for Chris, Robert, and myself. This has been the Rabbit Hunt brought to you by Cardinals.com. See you next week. <laughs>